are back. Normandy FM back in the pilot seat. I mean, it would be weird. Like, are we the ship or are we the pilot? I don't know. I haven't thought that far ahead. We're everything because we are speeding full steam ahead into a new season of Normandy FM. I, of course, am Eric Van Allen, joined by Kenneth Shepard. Ken, how you doing? Doing pretty all right. It's almost like my everything that I've ever known has just been overtaken by this giant ball of water that's shooting mm-hmm. bugs and shit at me and my like weird su- strong silent uncle figures here to make me fight towards it instead of away mm-hmm. from it mm-hmm. it's like i've been a, one of those days you know i've been thinking ken mm. and i think this this church might be bad mm, mm, <laughs> mm. much to think about much to think about also uh our our friend with the accent might be a little racist Mm. (laughs) but Mm. we'll we'll be touching on that don't worry um we are of course talking about final fantasy 10 as folks at home know uh we are covering final fantasy 10 for this season uh to give you all a rundown again you know for for what we are if you're just joining us now if this is your first time listening to normandy fm if you jumped in because you saw that we're covering final fantasy 10 right now we are a retrospective podcast we cover games in their entirety we break them up into sections we kind of essentially guide you through them we're like there are let's plays this is like a let's listen Mm. (laughs) let's discuss let's talk about these games we often encourage people to play along if they would like to but we cover this stuff pretty comprehensively and beat by beat so even if you have not played these games or it's been a while you should be able to follow along just fine uh usually it is ken and myself and oftentimes we're joined by other guests uh who come on from around the games industry who just talk about these games and we try to critically examine them we try to look at them in terms of what they're doing whether they're doing well or doing not so well what we like about them what we don't like about them what we can critique and what we can applaud and try to contextualize all of it both in terms of when it came out and how it is today Mm -hmm. and so which is actually very interesting for this one because this is the oldest game we've done on the show this is wait it's older than jade empire Mm -hmm. wow this game's 20 years old this year it doesn't feel 20 years old I gotta, I gotta say up front, not to like put the hot takes out there early about this game, but booting it back up feels very at home and like it. I'm not gonna say it feels like a modern RPG because I, I imagine we will talk about this as we go further into this this series. Uh, modern RPGs are kind of having an identity crisis, in my mm. opinion. <laughs> Final um, Fantasy kind of, is having an identity crisis. Oh, for sure. Like, definitely this series is having an identity crisis. And I think at large, a lot of RPGs are starting to grapple with the idea that a lot of the things that used to kind of limit them in the past, having to do, you know, like turn-based battles and stuff like that, they're starting to experiment more with action systems. And you have games like The Witcher and even, like, like recent stuff like scarlet nexus that really blurs that line um final fantasy 7 remake also an excellent example of like looking at how not just the graphics and the storytelling methods have changed but also just how the systems have changed and Mm -hmm. how what we perceive as an rpg has changed because i think a lot of people would normally characterize 
Final Fantasy VII Remake as closer to an action game mm-hmm. because it is kind of functionally an action game, but also it's an RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's all very interesting to look at because it means that the genre is expanding a lot, but Final Fantasy X itself, to bring it all back in, feels very traditional in mm-hmm. a way. It's it's strictly turn-based. There are no ATB bars or anything like that. Uh, it's the way it's set up is very like almost classic RPG. You kind of have a hero's journey that you're going on. You have like a path that you're embarking on a pilgrimage with an end goal. And a lot of the storytelling beats I would say are not, you know, they're what you expect out of an RPG, right? Mm. Like church, bad, big monster, bad, big twists, stuff like that. But it's the way that this story tells it and also the little things that this story does, the little nuances it puts on, or just this cast of characters, the way they do things is me ramping up to me saying like, I still freaking love this game. <laughs> yeah. Like it was even like, and we played, you know, very little for the first episode and I was already like just amazed at how well the intro to this game has aged. Like, you know, maybe not entirely visually, but just like in terms of like really like setting up, like, the sheer, like, force of nature that you were going to be facing this entire game. Good mm-hmm. shit. Like, just, man, like, you know, I it, it was a whole thing to me 20 years ago, but, like, I don't think I was even old enough to really understand how good this intro was back then, beyond the fact that it was, like, this emotionally affecting thing that was happening in front of me, where now, like, as I see it, knowing, like, the full context of the game and also being an adult that maybe understands the themes of it in a more holistic personal way beyond you know it just again like being this entertaining thing that was put in front of me as a, as a kid um yeah really really stoked for the season to be honest <laughs> same here and, and ken tell me about your history with final fantasy 10 and kind of you know how you first got into it and what the game has been to you in the years since mm. so uh, as i mentioned in like the episode where we announced this what we were doing my first experience with Final Fantasy was Final Fantasy X, but it wasn't until I played Kingdom Hearts that I actually mm-hmm. knew any of these characters. Like, I had ever really seen them. Like, Final Fantasy was a name that I knew as a kid, but, like, that wasn't... I didn't have any, like, real uh, connection with it beyond actually remembering the commercial for Final Fantasy X that was, like, mm-hmm. played on TV. Um, but I played, played Kingdom Hearts, and we... My family was, like, so into that game that we were like, oh, we want to go play Final Fantasy now, because, like, that is... You know, you open up those like that codex entry for each character, and it says like pre- like first appearance, Final Fantasy X, Final Fantasy VIII, mm-hmm. Final Fantasy VII, and so this uh this store that we used to rent games at, uh, the only thing they had was Final Fantasy X. So I was like, okay, cool. Um, so my uh, the earliest memories I have of it were actually I was playing it with my brother and a friend of ours, and we each had like so this game has multiple play- playable characters, and we would like have our designated characters, and like we'd just trade off whoever's turn it was. Um, and that was something that uh, made it entertaining in like a whole different way. But we actually ended up getting stuck about midway through, and it was because we didn't know how to use the sphere grid. So like we were like stuck like at uh, just before you recruit Riku properly later in the game, um, and that like held us up for a long time. Um, but it wasn't really like that was a game that I very much enjoyed, and like you know I really. Uh, it really held a special place in my heart for a while, but it wasn't really until ten two that the games became as important to me, and like this is kind of like very like long standing thing that I was gonna take with me for like years on, and it ultimately resulted in me getting the tattoo that I have. I have the Van Abe's mm-hmm. logo on my left arm, and um, 
that was, you know, there are a lot of things that I, I kind of, like, trace back to these games in terms of uh, my, I guess, like, my understanding of certain things that I've been taught my entire life. Um, weirdly enough, I, like, credit Final Fantasy X-2 specifically with opening up my musical ear in a way that we can talk about when mm-hmm. we get to that game. Um, and just generally, like, it was one of the games from that era of my life that resonated with me long after, like, in, like, the gap between when I first played it and when I was able to play it again with the, uh, the remasters that came out for the PS3 and the Vita. It, it was something that stayed with me, that entire, like, gap of time, and that's not something I can say for even a lot of other stuff that I played around that, that era of my life. Like, um, I, 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 I mean, if you're following me on any, like, social media right now, this might not be as apparent, but, like, there was, like, a solid, like, ten years where I didn't really think or think really much of the Sonic the Hedgehog series, but I, that was also, like, a series at that same time in my life that I was, like, really invested in, and, you know, there was just this gap in my life where it, like, suddenly wasn't, and where even if I wasn't able to play Final Fantasy X, I still remembered it in a way that I remember, you know, a lot of the other games that are, like, really special to me now, and that was, I think, one of the things that has kind of, like, you know, looking back on it, like, it just really solidifies to me how important it was that it still meant that much to me that far removed from playing it initially. Yeah, it's um, it's weird, this being such an old game, and, and a game that both of us have history with stretching back a really long time, because... I, I think I told the long version of the story in, in our last podcast when we did announce this, so I'll tell a short version now, but like I, I kind of consider this to be my first Final Fantasy. Um mm. you know, I played the demo disc thing of eight. Um I'd watched a friend play through a bunch of seven. Uh I had rented nine at some point uh for a weekend and was like, Oh that 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 was all right. Uh, please don't come for me, Final Fantasy IX <laughs> fans. I, I know you are fervent. Uh, I would like to give that game a second shot another day. Uh, I was like eight when this happened. Please don't judge me. Uh, but with Final Fantasy X, like, yeah, there's the Game Informer spread is all I remember is like that big image of Yuna dancing on the water and mm. like you open it up and it's got like the big spread of Kimari and and, and Tidus. Uh, I've... I've <laughs> I, I'm capitulating to Ken for for this podcast as best as I can manage it that I will call him Titus, even though I think that is wrong. Uh, for for the for the record, that is not wrong. That is what his name is. That is how his name is said. That's... Okay, well, let me go do some laundry with my teed pods real quick, and then we can talk after that. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, Final Fantasy X was was so much to me because it was just kind of the first RPG I really grappled mm. with as I was getting older too because I mean other RPGs I had played or played at friends house and they had you know come and gone and I thought they were interesting and cool and neat I thought the art styles were cool but they were a little bit slow you know legend of dragoon and and grandia and stuff like that mm. were all you know interesting to me but never really like grabbed me but Final Fantasy X was this moment, like the intro, like we talked about earlier, just grabs me. Like even when I play it now, it's just I always think I'm going to be very like stuffy and curmudgeonly about it one day. Like, oh, yeah, this is my story. Please mm. remember it and stuff like that. And then every time it happens, I'm like, oh, damn, this mm. this this game. Like, like right from the start, it's an interesting setup 
if you don't know what's going on. And then when you do know the context of them sitting there at the fire, it's even more like, oh, this game mm-hmm. is going to go places and I'm ready to go there with it. Yeah. Um, and and I, I was in kind of the same place. So, like, I... I had a very Christian upbringing, a very like church heavy upbringing. And I don't think I grappled with that until later. But when I did start to grapple with it, I started to see final fantasy 10 in a new light mm-hmm. and, and start to see like the idea of questioning beliefs. And even at a young age, it instilled in me the idea that questioning beliefs and, and asking questions and not accepting things at face value is, is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously it's like, it's an incredible love story. The cast is really cool. There are a lot of themes in there about like race and stuff like that that are going to be a lot to unpack. But uh, the 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 stuff about especially like authority and and built in like like the small town cultures that you see on these islands and stuff and and the way that communities form and then can be corrupted and stuff is like just. <laughs> I love this world and it does Mm. so much interesting storytelling. And as you go through it, uh, even the structure of this game, I think is really incredible. I hate it when people call it a a hallway game or whatever, because I think that's like not recognizing what it's trying to do and what it is doing, but like how it illustrates things through that, through that format. Exactly. Like it's, it is a pilgrimage like you, and, and I think there's a lot of weight behind leaving places behind right. knowing that you yeah. might not return to them. Uh, yeah. and Which so, we, yeah, mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cause like, <laughs> we'll I, 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 like, episode, I think, yeah, yeah. Like I, just, I think of those moments and I'm like, that is like, th- there's like a, it's poignant and it's also like meaningful and intentional and a way that like, and I, I think this is something that we'll even talk about even in this episode. I think there is like a bit of a tension between sort of like the ways that this game is talked about and sort of like, uh, how about this? Like the perception of what video games and video game storytelling should be, and how the like certain expectations or rigid ideas of what those things are uh, has maybe been part of like the kind of the conversation that surrounds this game, regardless of what whether or not in the context of what it is actually doing, those things those choices make sense and are adding to to what it's trying to accomplish. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just something that I think about. And I, I mean that's something that I've mentioned in a lot of these seasons that we've done. It's just like, you know, can the conversation around something get, like the more distance you get from something, does something get kind of boiled down to like the very reductive like bullet points that you can throw at it. And I think that is very, that was definitely going through my head. um, Even in this first section, just like the game knows what it's doing. Like it it knows itself in a way, like like we said, like Final Fantasy as a franchise maybe doesn't always or has not, Mm -hmm. at least not recently. Um, And that is all to say that like, something that like you know you were talking about like going back and playing like seven and eight and nine and i've played basically everything of like the latter half of like the number of final fantasy games and as well as like a lot of the spinoffs and something that like i am just like I'm, i've really got in my head in my head right now is that um i don't know if i'm a final fantasy fan per se in the way mm-hmm. that like a lot of people would like kind of brand themselves and like be like oh this is one of my favorite franchises and like i enjoy a lot of final fantasies but i think Nothing's ever, nothing has ever hit me the way that Final Fantasy X and X Two does, and that makes my, you know, I mean, it's that's I think that like with a series that's run this long and it is as uh, almost like sectored off more so than a lot of other franchises are in video games, just because like every new iteration is you know completely new world, different set of mechanics, different characters, so like it is by design like more um, sectored off in that way, 
So I think mm-hmm. it just kind of like, it makes sense that, like some people like have their favorites, but I also just think like I I've enjoyed to varying degrees other Final Fantasy games. Like I really love the Final Fantasy Thirteen trilogy, um, but nothing that I nothing before and after ten that I've played has uh, ever hit me the same way. Yeah, and I think even if you look at the legacy of Final Fantasy, like ten is a pretty easy mark to look at as a transition from. Mm-hmm that sort of PS one style into what the series has become now. And that also means like you do see some of the ways in which I think final fantasy tilted a little bit too hard. I've been meaning to play 12. I really want to play 12 because I've played 13 and I've played 15, but I've not played 12 and I really Mm -hmm. want to just like get that chronology in my head and see how those ideas evolved over time. Obviously 11 and 14 are kind of outliers in that respect. But, um, What's what's really interesting is to see how Final Fantasy started to embrace the ideas of like character moments mm-hmm. and having like individual different like levels of of meters and social interaction. Like there is there is an affection meter in this game that is completely hidden, but does factor into some things in this game that you would have to go digging into a guide or a wiki to find out about. But it does change some cutscenes and some scenes. It's really just like what character appears in this cutscene, but it does change. <laughs> and mm. it's cool that there's stuff like that in here in like a 2001 game. And, uh, you know, granted other series were doing much more with this, uh, at the time as well. But I think final fantasy 10 is, is this series starting to do it with the level of also like production and prestige mm-hmm. that final fantasy is known for. Right. And, uh, before we actually get started with the actual recap of this thing, uh, we do have to say, and it's going to come up again and again and again, but the music of this game, we have mm. to talk about it now because it's literally like the first thing you get in the game is this freaking Tazanarkind piano line that is so mm. good. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. Yeah, oh. it's like, so I, I was thinking about this actually. Like, I, I think I have it in my notes somewhere on here. The, the series that we have covered in this show to this point, like, they have, like, they have great music. Mass Effect, Last of Us, yes. Dragon Age, yeah. all great music. Certainly no sandwiches. Like, straight up, like, I don't think any game really, like, I, I almost, I, I consider, like, Final Fantasy Tennis and 2, like, probably my favorite video game soundtrack. I think just, like, that is, like, bar none. And I think mm. just generally the series, nah, well... More, more yeah, recent, more recent iterations, I think, have had a weirdly like more Western kind of take on music. And, like, like all those games have like Western artists doing like their credit songs. Like that's something I think about a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, the use of licensed music and stuff. Yeah, but um, like Ten and Ten Two, like those, they, they, there are so many tracks in these games that like I associate so heavily with like moments in ways that I don't necessarily always do with games like that we've already covered like you know, there are certainly moments like I, I think like you know anderson's last scene i look at that that music that plays in mass effect 3 mm-hmm. um is always gonna like be something that i really associate with that moment but 10 and 10 to just like are that like that idea is just like constant like everywhere like it has like a, a theme or like a scene that like has you know a particular song that goes along with it just like immediately takes me back in a way that not a lot of video games do mm-hmm it's it's really incredible the way that w- when we play through this stuff, like to Xanarkand is an obvious choice, but even when I boot up the Sphere Grid and I hear that remix of the Final Fantasy arpeggio, that like 
poppy tune with the drum beats, like almost 808 beats and stuff like that. And it's doing the little arpeggio up and down as you're flipping around and, and hitting stuff on the, the sphere grid or even like the noises that menu makes is like, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a very specific thing. I was actually super bummed. So I'm playing on PS five, mm. uh, playing the PS4 remaster that came out. Mm. And I had a moment where I legitimately considered how costly it would be to get a PS2 and a memory card and, and the DualShock. <laughs> because when I went to save my game in a sphere grid, it popped me into like a PS5 system menu mm-hmm. and made me use that instead of the save menu that I am so accustomed to with this game Mm -hmm. and i just sat there and was like it would be silly to like because i still have my copy of final fantasy 10 for the ps2 Mm -hmm. i just don't have any way of playing it but i still have that and i was just looking at it like how much do i want to play this on the original hardware the way it was meant to be played the first time And, Mm -hmm. and i ended up deciding against it but uh yeah it's there's so much about this game that I feel just is nostalgia just capsulized for mm-hmm. me. <laughs> like it is just waves of my childhood. And when we get to later parts of the game, that's probably where some of the nostalgia will, will wane away because I I've told the story before how I used to play through the intro to this game over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, whereas like the number of times I've played through the actual ending is probably only like once maybe twice mm. i mean the first time i beat it and then i don't i don't think i even beat it when the remaster came out um i think i got up to like mount gagazette or, or xanarkand or something like that and and just moved on to something else but uh yeah everything up to a certain point is just going to be waves and waves of nostalgia like probably all the way through to Ixion and Guado Salam and mm. stuff like that is just going to be like <laughs> just waves so, of nostalgia for me. So what did you end up picking? Because like we're playing on the re- the remaster and it allows you to switch uh-huh. back and forth between the original and remastered soundtrack. Which one did you pick? So I picked the original soundtrack because mm. I wanted to hear that soundtrack. I do like this. This is not like a preference choice. I like both versions of the soundtrack. And I do think the new version of it uh, has some really good arrangements and some really good instrumentation. I think you picked the remastered version. I did. I just I, I really like a lot of the instrumentation that they that they did to completely remake that soundtrack. Especially like I think of like mm-hmm. the uh, the sort of like soaring beach soundtrack of Besaid. Just like that one in particular is something that's like you don't like the always... frog getting hit by a hammer. The... Not no, I can't say I'm a fan <laughs> of that. No. Yeah, it's like shit like that. I'm like ah, oh, that's like. It's one of those things where, like, I I get why why people might feel nostalgic for that shit, but like when there's an argument of like this was better, and I'm like, oh, was no, it though? No. <laughs> was I, it's, it? the same, it's the same music. It's just different interpretations of it. And mm. and whereas for me, like, I I actually started laughing when I got to that part because every time I hear it, I'm like, who is beating the shit out of Kermit the Frog off <laughs> screen? <laughs> yeah. Um. um but as far as that goes, I think we both went standard sphere grid, right? We are not doing any yeah. expert sphere grid nonsense. Like, I understand the appeal of that. And that, like, if you're a person that, like, really wants to just, like, mess around with, like, characters filling different roles, that's all well and fine. But I'm just, like, I associate the strategies of this game, like, so specifically with, like, the, uh, what is basically, like, the classes and, like, that these characters are all supposed to, and, the, like, the roles are supposed to fill. 
So yeah. I was just like, yeah. I just I would prefer to keep them where they're supposed to be, and a lot of that even like in some some things that's kind of like a plot thing. Like I want you, I want Yuna to be a white mage because that is what she, that is her role in this universe, and mm-hmm. I don't want her to suddenly be like as strong as Orin and like you know being able to knock things out by hitting him with a staff. <laughs> Meanwhile, Orin's in the back like. I have null shock available to use right now. Yeah. <laughs> do you, uh, here's, here's a controversial question. I'm just going to ask right now. Do you skill everything on the sphere grid as you go? Or do I, you tr- I try some... to. I okay. try to. Just because, I always like, it... think about it when I get to Yuna's first abilities and there's four ability spheres for like null shock, null fire mm-hmm. and all that. And I'm just like, do I really need these? Like, how often do I use these in the game? <laughs> well, because like I even remember because like, I, I replayed these games when the pandemic had just begun, and I remember there were points where like there were fights where like I definitely needed to have those, and I was glad that I did. And that's that's the thing is like you know you can skip over things if you like don't see much use in them, but like it is good to have all of them. And, like this is for basically anybody that doesn't know this, this, the sphere grid is basically the equivalent of like it's, it's like a very I, I guess it's, like, a bigger skill tree sort of thing. Like, it's, like, very reminiscent of, like, modern skill trees that you find in mm-hmm. RPGs. But, like, there's stuff... Instead of just, like, abilities, you're also finding, like, stat upgrades and things like that. And it's just... And, and it has, like, different branching paths. And the idea is you have kind of one marker that moves along that is that character's progress on the sphere grid. But you also have locks that you can unlock that could open up different paths or, like open the area to there are some particularly powerful abilities that even though they are clearly intended for like lulu to get you need like a level four sphere grid to get to or or unlock sphere or whatever to get to it Mm. um and so and that also means that for some characters especially like the ones that come to mind are waka and kimari both can really flex into other roles as you go and you can mm. start moving them into other areas because the sphere grid is one giant grid. Like right. it's not, and all the characters start at different points. It's not like each character has their own skill tree. They just start at different points of the massive skill tree. So there is the potential theoretically that you could traverse the entire sphere grid with a single character. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever actually done that, but yeah, I don't know who'd have the patience to do that. That is, yeah, like you're not There's like probably a level cap too, right? I have to imagine that maybe. at some point you run out of. But I don't know. Would you ever actually run out of like sphere grid stuff to gain? That's interesting. I'm gonna do some research on that later. Mm. Um, but I, I will say I love this system. Like I think yeah. it's a great system. I think it's cool. I do think it's a little linear to start. I mean, honestly, it's pretty linear for most of the early game, and it's not right. until you start getting to the point where you have to make decisions about. Do I want to advance along the sphere grid and come back later uh, to unlock something that has like a level four lock on it? Or do I want to hold off for a bit and wait to see if I can get one off a boss fight or a rare fight or something like that and and progress that way? It is at at times it does kind of feel like you're just arbitrarily picking, you know, like, okay, these are my stat upgrades. But once you get to the point where things can branch and you can go on different paths mm. or choose to skip little areas or not, uh, I think it gets really, really interesting. So. Yeah, and I, and I feel like it's something that the series has kind of tried to emulate but never really done again. Because, like, Final Fantasy XIII mm-hmm. had something that was similar, but it didn't give yeah. you, like, that same freedom and pathing. And mm-hmm. it, it basically was, like, it had, like, the visual elements of a sphere grid, but it was not 
in terms of the functionality the same. And um, yeah, kind of miss it, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's something that I think both 10 and 10 2 have really interesting progression systems mm. for their characters. I'm really excited to revisit 10 2 when we get there and yeah. talk about like the dress sphere stuff because that is a system I remember liking a lot when I played it, but it's also mm. literally been probably 18 years since I played that game. Mm. So uh, we'll see how that's yeah. how that's gone. Um, Ken, should we talk about Final Fantasy? Which I mean, now? yeah, we're like how fucking we're almost 30 minutes yeah. and we haven't actually moved the story forward. Remember how we talked before this podcast about, Oh, you know, some of the early episodes might be shorter. I no longer believe that. Mm. <laughs> uh, so we start out final fantasy 10. Uh, let, let's say we are in an area. There is a campfire. There are a bunch of characters gathered around it. Uh, they are a colorful motley crew of, of, fantasy characters you know you got a dude with a big sword you got a blue lion guy you got a lady whose dress defies gravity um (laughs) i don't know lulu i don't know how that dress is staying on (laughs) i legitimately don't (laughs) even today i look at that thing and i'm like what the hell (laughs) what is it holding on to yeah there's there's nothing it defies gravity (laughs) but uh and then and then we get a close-up as as our our blonde character who we can pretty soon start to assume is going to be a lead character. He is on the box art after all, uh, walks up to a brunette, uh, wearing this like long flowing, like robe sort of stuff, uh, and pauses for a minute and puts a hand on her shoulder. And she kind of acknowledges it very tenderly and such. And then he walks up onto a cliff and looks out over these ruins. Uh, and it pauses for a moment and just kind of zooms in on his face in a way that you have to imagine was probably pretty impactful right. for the time, for the graphics and stuff. Uh, nowadays, I'm just like, wow, they really linger on his face there for a bit, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, but he looks around and there's kind of fireflies, these weird orbs uh, floating everywhere. And he says, in narration, very clearly, because it's in italics, <laughs> listen to my story. This may be our last chance. And then Final Fantasy X. Put a pin in that for many, oh. many episodes. We'll, we'll get back to that in a few months. Yeah, yeah. We'll see you in, like, what, November when we get <laughs> back to that. Uh, meanwhile, we jump back uh, to now we're in, like, this futuristic city. Very, I mean vaguely midgarish but like even more futuristic and mm. and just like buildings as far as the eye can see and uh highways that exist without cars ken did that bother you at all it, it was that? one of the things where like i was looking at like the actual like the art direction of vanderkind is uh i think really holds up but like when you look at like the logistics of how this is all supposed to work i was like yeah uh, it feels like they're doing like a lot of not really showing and i think that was you know again that was probably just a technical limitation of just like where you're kind of just letting you see what this world looked like, but not really getting into the minutia of how it operates. We'll get into this, like the further in we get into this section and definitely in, in next episode, I imagine episodes to follow afterwards. Um, but different locations do this to varying degrees where maybe a tone is 
displayed rather than an actual like show of scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, Final Fantasy, like look at Final Fantasy seven and then look at Final Fantasy seven remake. Some of it is literally just technical limitation. Like right. it is not something that they were fully capable of doing. And there are times in this game where you have stuff like Luca, where they, I think they really do sell that sense of scale and yeah. that sense of how large these areas are and how expansive they are. And then you get to parts like I always thought Guado Salam was a really weird area because it was supposed to be this like haven for an entire culture. And then there's like three rooms in it. Right. <laughs> and I was like, where do they all sleep? But yeah. uh, <laughs> same with Besaid, honestly. I was like, do they all just live in one house together? Okay. Mm. Um, so, uh, but we are in Xanarkand and we're hanging out in this futuristic city as Mr. Blonde hair. Uh, and there's a whole crowd there. There's mm. a big crowd waiting for you and you can run out into it. Clearly we are an athlete. They've got these, these blue balls <laughs> that, that <laughs> blue and white balls, unintentional, <laughs> uh, these, these blue spheres that, uh, that people are holding kind of like a soccer ball that we learn is called a blitz ball. He's a blitz ball player. And we can walk up to these girls who are, who are just fanning out over him. They have the line that I can never stop thinking of, which is like, um, East block third row. (laughs) (laughs) Like I just hear there are lines in this game that I can like, I read the text and Mm -hmm. I can hear them. It's that one. And stay away from the summoner. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that's one time I kept testing that to see if I could start a second conversation with you. Now I know we were jumping all around like crazy. It's because I've played all the way through up to Killica at this point because I could not stop myself. And I I would test random lines to see how often I could get them to pop up, and that was a fun one. Um, so here we get to pick a name, which is a weird thing. So there are. We, our character, can be named differently than what is, like, canon expected in the same way that... I I mean, other Final Fantasies have done this, too. This is not necessarily unique, but it it, it kind of felt like a holdover from older RPGs where you could do that sort of thing. Especially because this was, like... I'm going to check this to make sure. This was the first Final Fantasy with voice acting. So Mm -hmm. it it plays into the way that they had to write dialogue around never actually saying this character's name, which is part of the reason that there's like a dispute as to how you pronounce it. Um, But I went with Titus. Why would you you not call the character Titus? That like bothers me. Even when I play Legend of Zelda, I always name Link Link. I think it's weird not to. Uh, That's Link. Yeah. so yes, Titus, the the tide of you and us uh, here. Um, we we sign the ball and and you know, we we say like, oh, you know, maybe we could hang out. And we talk to some kids, and some kids are like, oh, teach us how to blitz. We want to learn how to blitz, and you know, teach us after the game. And and Titus is kind of like, oh, well, maybe. And then all of a sudden, this hooded kid shows up out of nowhere. Is like, you can't tonight. the way he talks always like just deeply unsettles me um and and uh titus is like oh tomorrow then i guess sure uh and they do a little soccer pose and and bow and put a pin in that as well for next week um 
So we take off. We Titus starts running in in a futuristic city with seemingly no vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> Titus starts running down a high a barren highway towards the arena uh and encounters a billboard of a gruff-looking fella overhead which he kind of sneers at uh, mm. you know, gives a little pshaw uh and put a pin in that mm. <laughs> there's a lot there's gonna be a lot of put a pin in that this week and every week uh but then we get another cool thing that i think really was the moment where i was like wow i love the intro of this game was we get this voiceover from uh oh, what's the guy's name zanar uh the blitzball commentator uh, who starts off just like telling this story about where he was the day that he heard that Jacked, this great player, disappeared. Mm. And he's telling this very like emotional story about what Jacked like meant to the sport and what he meant to Xanarkand and, and how like distraught he was before going into the build up to the game that Titus is running towards. Um and I think it's such an effective way of not just like you are building the world, okay? So you're like setting up who Jekt is and what Jekt meant to a lot of characters. And obviously we're also setting up, as we later learn, who is on that billboard was Jekt and the relationship that Titus has with Jekt and how it's different from the way that pretty much everyone mm-hmm. else sees Jekt. Yeah. And uh, we're not only doing that, but we're just building world. Like we're... We're hearing a commentator build up into a sports match the same way that like a football commentator would. Mm. And we get this sense of history and legacy and the way that Blitzball clearly has some ties into the culture of Xanarkand. It means it means to this city what like a football like like a famous football star would mean if they went missing all this like suddenly one day, mm. what it would mean to that city if that happened. And I think that's it, it it's such a cool little thing that I love it when games do stuff like this. Mm. Uh, did you feel strongly about it? Uh, I think if mm, the thing that I think is interesting about it is how much, like how much they are able to establish about Xanarkin in such little time and mm-hmm. how it makes what, what I think a lot of games would like, if they were able to present as little information as they actually are able to in this game, um, mm. I think it would probably fall in flat, but I just, I bought in so so much to what the game was already trying to illustrate with what Xanarkin what Xanarkin was as like a a city, what Blitzball must mean to these people, and who that person is who our character does not seem to like, and like you know they they it's almost like they seem to be establishing one story already, and then mm-hmm. they are going to basically put a fucking wrecking ball to it, like, <laughs> and then the plot shows up, <laughs> and so like I think that's that was my main takeaway here was just like how much they. I guess I like confidently it's it is setting you up on one road before it's just gonna be like oh that's actually not what this game is about in the most concrete way but mm-hmm. will be come about eventually. Yeah, like so we we transition from this into like you know, Titus once again being chased by fans into the stadium, and and the weird sort of I I love this little quirk of of Titus, and it only happens in certain areas and stuff but his weird running in place anxiety dance that he mm. does is maybe one of my favorite things mm. just about this character because he does it again in Besaid and it's hilarious but that weird moment where like oh I'm feeling really anxious about this situation uh, I'm just gonna jog in place <laughs> please please everyone leave me alone uh, yep. is really good 
But then we get into our first cut scene. Like, so this is the other weird aspect of this game is that a lot of stuff is in engine, but there are also a lot of what you call like full motion video, like rendered cut scenes that are mm. super detailed. I mean, even by today's standards, clearly a lot of work went into this. Like it right. looks, I think it looks good for today's standards, honestly. Um, yeah. It's like, it's it, not it, like, like it was a PS2 game that looks like, like th- these cut scenes that looked about what like early to mid 360 era looked like in terms yeah. like in terms of fidelity. And so like they are, you know, I mean, they're not as good as like what put they're putting on these days, but it still looks pretty like all right. It's not some. It's not one of those things where like it's like makes me like kind of throw back like oh no that does not look that does, that does not hold up. Um, and I think I I'm, I'm noticing a lot of like the uh, you know like even some of like the CG stuff from that era is not all holding up as well as it did mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. But um, Final Fantasy specifically has definitely held up. I think. I think a lot about how this game is like it does try to have like human you know shapes and stuff like that it's it's still there is some element of realism because you know realism is the thing that tends to age worse you know when you have more fantastical creatures it's easy to have them look different and Mm. and you know or even when you have a character that's like human but like cartoonishly proportioned like mario or someone Mm. like that uh it that ages better than like trying to just capture what a person looks like and final fantasy X feels weirdly different in that respect in that there's just enough of a fantasy like sheen over this that yeah like you can tell this is an old game but it doesn't look as old as it really is like and and the remaster helped with that obviously Mm, like i'm sure if i booted up the ps2 version i'd be like holy crap what's going on here (laughs) uh but there are definitely parts of this game that i just still sit there and i'm like wow this I mean, it looks good. I, I don't want to invoke the the powers that be or whatever, but I had I did have multiple thoughts throughout playing this first section of, what would a ten remake look mm. like? What would a ten remake be like? Because I think, I think this game could be ripe for a remake. <laughs> I think would it, would it have I, some like weird shadowy creatures that follow Titus and Yuna around and make sure that they they do what they're supposed to. The, the Dementors <laughs> making sure that canon is kept. Uh, yeah, no, that, that would be wild. Honestly, I could kind of get into that. Um, the idea of like keeping the canon and all that. Uh, you could even get into some weird stuff considering where 10, two goes. Uh, and then you could find a way to retcon all the post 10, two stuff <laughs> like Titus dying from kicking a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was real. It's real. <laughs> I didn't it's think real. That was real. Not to spoiler something that we won't talk about until probably a year from now, but it will be like a year from now. So mm. whatever. But, uh, good God. Mm. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> this is also a reminder that we are covering all that final fantasy 10 is. So 10, 10, to 10, to eternal calm, and some of the side stories and stuff that will be contained there within. So look forward to that. Mm. <laughs> um, anyways. Uh, yeah. This cinematic is incredible. Like we get to see the Blitzball arena form. We get mm. to 
see this sick ass sport stuff happening where they're just like body checking each other. There's there's someone who gets checked so hard by Titus that they go flying out of the pool mm-hmm. and into the stands. And I've always like questioned the physics of that, but then this is also a world where some people can apparently just breathe underwater and it's never questioned. So no. you know what? We're just gonna roll with it. Uh <laughs> uh yeah. And, th- and then while this is all happening, we see Orin uh, somehow somehow managed to climb up very, very high in Xanarkin, dangerously high, uh, and starts, you know, swigging the bottle while a massive tidal wave approaches and what seems to be something in it approaching the city. And then all this is happening as this dude is just going like, oh, duh. Bada, bada, mm. Another world <laughs> awaits you. <laughs> That's um, um that song kind of owns. It kind of does, and it's like it's something that really I got. Good. I, it, it, it's it's a weird thing because like that song, like if everything about it on paper should not work for me, like that does not line up with what I generally like, even of like heavy metal music. Um, in terms of, like the the vocal delivery is not something I usually drive with. The sort of like the, like there's this weird like spoken word part in the middle of it too, and it's like all these like really cheesy things, but just like really for me in the context of the scene and because of the, I have the context of the scene I can listen to the song without it without grimacing mm-hmm. it's it's kind of amazing in how so uh, <laughs> I went to go look it up because I was like there has to be a non-zero chance that uh, that this song is performed by Daisuke Ishiwatari and the folks who do the Guilty Gear soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just saying, there's got to be not. It is not them. It is uh, the English language vocalist uh, in this is Bill M- Muir, who uh, was the front man of X Till I Die X or Till I Die, which was a straight edge hardcore punk band. Mm-hmm. Um, that and this is from the Final Fantasy wiki. Uh, according to them, toured Japan from 1998 to 2002 in an attempt at popularizing the straight edge subculture. <laughs> Which, you know what? More power to you. <laughs> um, that's incredible. And also, it's got some music in there from the Black Mages, which are a hard rock Japanese hard rock band formed by one of the composers on here, Nobuo Uematsu. Uh, it's it's just incredible. Everything about it is incredible, and I love it, and it's so good. <laughs> uh, so, oh, so we we get to a point where where Titus goes up for a big spin shot, a big arcing backwards bicycle kick shot, uh, and when he is upside down and looks out, he sees this monster firing what look like bullets into the city and just destroying things and ripping the city apart. And he goes tumbling down uh, into the chaos and rubble below. Uh, and that's the end of the cinematic. And when we come to uh, the, the arenas falling into shambles, everybody's running. Uh, and, and, you know, we hear the what will soon become known as the danger music, as I like to call it. Like, oh, things are afoot music. Uh, and, and we run out. We see Oren there. Somehow Oren got down real fast. <laughs> uh we don't really know who Oren is just yet, but Titus clearly seems to know him. 
because uh, he runs up to him and says, you know, like, hey, what are you doing here? And and he's like, you come with me. We we got to go somewhere. Um, we, you know, waiting for you. We're gonna go somewhere. Uh, we start heading off down the highway, uh, moving in the opposite direction of where people are running from. We are heading towards <laughs> the <laughs> danger. Uh, and Titus is obviously like, Hey, come on, don't go that way. We got to go the other way. And then everything freezes. And that kid shows up again. And he just says, it begins. Don't cry. And then boom, <laughs> it starts again. And oh. so that was a moment. And like, there are a few, like I, something like, again, like watch, like watching this all unfold, knowing what's happening is like why I think a lot of this hits for me, but something that I think of, I'm realizing even in some of the scenes of the section that we're gonna talk about today I feel like this is where kind of like that what I was talking about like idea of what games should be versus how we perceive game storytelling now is mm-hmm. kind of like there, there's like a tension here because like when the game is starting to like put forth what is like actually like a like a long tail thematic through line that's gonna be through the whole game a lot of these scenes are like seconds long and that is like yes. I, I just yeah. think that was like you know, there like we don't have like you know the the technology to have like what is the more cinematic storytelling of this era. But I also part of it also just felt like because I mean, and I think the game is going to get progressively better at that because like I, I I'm thinking forward to some scenes like where they like really are able to sell the gravity of a moment. But then there are some things like this. I'm like, you're like establishing one of like the important like character beats here in all of like five seconds, and this like it almost feels like there's this need to keep moving because it's a video game and we have gone this long without actual gameplay and that is a an issue that i think has become less less of a problem in maybe you know more, more recent years as studios are trying to like really give care and like time for their stories to breathe in a way that like final fantasy 10 kind of goes back and forth between i noticed mm-hmm. yeah it's it's really interesting because one of the main thoughts I had through this section and even through some of the later sections that we're going to go through is I was like, wow, this is moving faster than I remember it being right. Like it, it feels like we're just really blown through plot point after plot point. Like there are some, there are some character arcs we get condensed into probably an entire section. Uh, right. And, and, and granted it's not the entire character arc, but it really drove home for me how a lot of this game is about how these characters grow to get to know each other and trust each other over time. Mm. Um, and I think one of, you know, I talked earlier about, you know, how the importance of, you know, leaving things behind and moving on from old places and, and, you know, leaving a home you may not see again and, and, and yada, yada, yada. I think that's a big thing in this game. I also feel like this game is, about a lot of characters who like to run from their problems <laughs> and, and instead of dealing with them and the whole, you know, if you want to get like real thematic, this game is about a pilgrimage where you are running along a path while a giant monster is basically nipping at your heels the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really interesting to look at it in that retro in that perspective, because yeah, there's the moments when we do finally get to stop and breathe in this game stand out a lot more because so much else happens and and there's so much bad stuff happening in this game. I mean, you very rarely get moments of peace in, in Spira, uh, at least in Final Fantasy X. And it makes them stand out all the more when they exist and when they happen. I think the game sells that very early on this idea that like, 
yeah, some of it may seem idyllic and almost like paradise, but then there is also like you are moments away from just absolute annihilation at any given moment. Uh, anyways, so, oh boy, God, this intro is so good. <laughs> um, he, as you go towards the giant orb of water that is hovering in the distance, Oren calls it sin. So, you know, just put a pin in that. Uh, and it starts to shoot out little bug creatures that turn into giant insects that have these spinely, almost like, like, uh, cactus wings kind of, uh, and, and as Titus woefully just tries to, you know, punch and kick them away, failing the whole time. <laughs> Uh, and, and what I imagine Oren just standing there and watching with amusement. Yeah, like he, he let him, bo- he let him do that for like a hot second. Oren understands that every once in a while, someone's got to get their ass kicked to learn a lesson, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and Titus's lesson is you're going to need to learn how to use this sword that your father wanted me to give you. Um, and so, and Titus clearly does not know how to use this sword. I mean, he practically falls over from the weight, but then he very quickly kind of one hands it and goes into that, that stance that I just like always picture Titus being in that like weird waving around the sword and mm-hmm. stuff. I don't know why just like even the idle stances in this game are just like seared into my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, now we get into the combat. So like I said before, turn-based combat. Uh, I love one of the things I love about this game is just how clear it is and how you get like time to kind of make the tactical mm-hmm. decision you want to make you, you want to make. And also you can see like, okay, if I do this, it's going to put me here. Like this is where my next turn is and this is how it's going to affect everyone else's turn. Right. And so you can kind of start to plan out and go, okay, like if I haste or if I slow or if I do a the Veil Force Sonic Wing or something like that, you can always see how that's going to affect the timeline and, uh, and shift up the order of things that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as a kid, when I was playing this, it made it way more accessible than yeah. ATB, which I was always just like stressing over. Right. Because I was like, if I'm not selecting something fast enough, then I might die before I get to use it or something. And so yeah. um, I, I love this battle system. Yeah. I still love this battle system. Yeah, I definitely prefer it over any variation of ATB, even like Tentu, which is my favorite of the two games, like does go back into ATB, which for anyone that doesn't know, like you have, it, it's sort of real time in the way that 10 is not, and that like time has to pass for your character's uh like your character will be able to actually use an ability again or anything like, like that. Cooldowns essentially on acting. Yeah, and, and different abilities you use will extend or reduce that cooldown too. Yeah, and whereas this is the more traditional turn-based system that most people are familiar with with the, the genre, I guess. And at the time, like all I'd ever really done about this, like done in terms of turn-based combat, was Pokemon at the time. And um, mm-hmm. that is not even turn-based per se; it is round-based, where like you you both players pick a move and then things play out based on stats and all that fun stuff. Whereas this was, and I, I feel like it's pretty de- uh, deceptively simple here because like you only have two characters out of what are going to be like I, seven or eight, the numbers gave me right now. Um, mm-hmm. And the actual like switching of characters in between turn, like in between turns and adjusting, like basically on the fly to whatever's going on um, is like paramount to the actual parts of this game gets, very tactical and very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, where here we are basically just being like tutorialized. Like, here's how you attack. Here's how you attack certain 
things in the environment, which is like that was new. I think um, that like there are gonna be, there are points where the the fight can be altered by something that's in the environment that we can attack instead of attacking an enemy. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, not it doesn't seem like a whole lot right here. But by the time that it gets to the point where enemies are more complex and your strategies have like are can involve like maybe having like three characters on the field at once and then doing something with them and then switching almost all of them out again by the time that your turns have come around. Because, um, like, I think I think forward to fights where, like, I was constantly, like, having to switch. And it, not in a way that ever felt like that was me having to, I don't know, like, like cheese it to, like, accomplish something. Just, like, basically, like, play a numbers game. Like, no, like, actually each character's different ability sets, if you are following the more linear path of, of the sphere grid played into the strategies that I was making and in a meaningful way because like they find ways in this game to make different encounters very distinct in a way that not a lot of turn-based RPGs can often do um so yeah just like very simple here but it's go it is a very solid basis for something that is very complex and not but not complicated in the way that a lot of even modern, more modern Final Fantasies have been, because, like, you know, in 13, you had the Paradigm Shift, which was, like, you know, completely, like, brand new to that game, and they, they actually didn't really emulate it after, but it was a whole different way of playing a Final Fantasy game that did take time and a lot of tutorializing in a way that this, this game is able to more succinctly get principles across and then make you confront all of them in the way that it designs encounters and designs enemies and boss fights. Let's put it real simple. This is a battle system that's so good that there's another RPG that basically used the same battle system. <laughs> uh, shout outs to, was that Lord of the Rings, the third age or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go check out gameplay footage of that sometime. If you're a final fantasy fan and haven't seen it before, uh, it's pretty wild first time i saw it i was like this is a joke right and they were like no this is they they did a final <laughs> fantasy 10 <laughs> um more power to them though uh, more people need to lift this system is what i say but uh yeah so uh i'm sorry if i if i missed it somewhere in there did you mention the overdrives as well no i didn't the, no, okay but... so let's talk about the overdrives um which are kind of like the limit breaks of this mm. game uh Initially, I think early on in the game, I'm not a fan of overdrives because mm. when you start out, your only options for building up overdrive and stuff are just getting hit. Yeah. And so you end up not being able to use them as often as I think you'd like, and they build up very slow and they feel kind of more like revenge bars than anything else. Right. Um, I like the mini game aspect of them a lot, mm. actually, except for maybe uh, Waka's, which I think is just yep. I don't like at all, uh, and Lulu's, which makes me break controllers. But <laughs> um, some of the stuff they do with overdrives, especially I think Riku's overdrive, is really, really, really stinking cool. Mm -hmm. um, and once you get into the the part of the game where you can start changing the way that your overdrive meter charges, mm. uh, you, you get into some really cool areas where, okay, now, you know, you build it up through doing the things that you want to be doing in combat and, right. and it feels a little bit more specialized. Yeah. Uh, Cause like then you can start assigning it to different ways, different characters. Like say I want it, like I, I put, I like say I put Yuna's to her overdrive to build when she heals people. 
or exactly. things like that. Like, you know, something that can be, like, actually tailored to the character that you're using instead of... Because, like, if Yuna gets hit, she's typically a character that does not have a lot of defense and a lot of HP. So I would rather not that be the way that she gains overdraft because, like, there's not even a lot of guarantee that I'll be able to use it by the time that it's built up because, like, she can right. die very easily. Uh, there have legitimately been times in this game where I will go into a fight that I know I can just deal with and I will intentionally hit party members to build up their yep. overdrive meter so I can have them going into a boss fight. Because <laughs> you can do that in this game. You can hit your own party members if you want to. Uh, so Yuna will run in there and hit Lulu over the head with a staff until <laughs> she gets her overdrive. <laughs> and then we can move on. Um, it's it's really silly. So I like it once once the game le- opens that stuff up. Yep. But even early on, like the overdrives are just kind of neat. I think they also get more complex and interesting as the game goes on so we'll touch Mm. on those as we start to unlock some of that stuff uh the ones we have right away are basically just titas and orins and i don't think i even used orins in this intro section so uh we just had like titas's spiral cut which is just a very basic like big target damage attack Mm. you know good stuff um we we work with that, but we also start to deal with a um, other other stuff like attacking environmental uh, mm. targets. There's the part where you have to knock the tanker off. That's really cool. That I mm. I always think is really interesting. And they start to do really novel things with this in some of the later boss fights. Yep. Uh, one in this section, and then one later on in Luca that specifically come to mind. Um, just cool cool ideas and twists it always feels like this is a game where the boss fights feel like the designers just got to have a little bit of fun and create these characters that have very singular ideas and what they want to do and they're not just giant characters that have like a trick to them and you need to figure it out but they're well i mean they kind of are that but (laughs) but a lot of them the tricks are really interesting and you could there are a lot of bosses that you could fight in a normal way in this game, or you could try to figure out what their key strategy is and defeat them using that. Um, and it's it's cool. I like it a lot. I, I like pretty much all the bosses in this game. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about the ones I don't like. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, after we get through a bunch of Sin Spawn and a big old obelisk-looking thing with tentacles and stuff, uh, we finally get to kind of where the 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 spear is and and Oren's like you know clearly this is where we were supposed to be going and like things are collapsing and Titus is hanging on by his his fingers and stuff and uh Oren kind of looks up at the giant hole in the sky and is like are you sure and 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 gets whatever answer he was waiting for I suppose and reaches down and picks up Titus by the collar and, and tells him, this is it. This is your story. It all begins here. And then we go through the wacky light tunnel in, into whatever lies beyond the sphere. Um, Ken, as you note here, it is like essentially the burning village RPG trope, right? Yeah. But it's done in such a way that not only have we really established this whole world like it's not like just a village has burned like an entire world has been destroyed right. essentially and as we will soon learn like an entire era right. um but it also is like the deconstruction of you know this is this is a character who is 
clearly become pretty comfortable with his lot in life. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the star player of the Xanarkand Abes. He's he's dealing with some stuff, but he doesn't really ever have to think about it much except when he runs by billboards on the highway, right? right. Like he he just goes and he he does whatever he wants and he's he's a star player. He's got girls banging down his door and and a bunch of kids who want to learn how to play blitzball from him. And this is the part where we are going to remove everything that Titus has for a support structure mm. and send him into a completely different place. Yep. Yeah, and it's going to be like I, I think it's also well. Let's put a pen in some of that because I, I think like the, the sort of framing they give you as Titus as a character is one of the like smartest narrative choices I think they could have made because like there's a level of disorientation to all of this as well just because like they mm-hmm. they do show relatively little but they like they're able to like kind of communicate enough of it like that we have that we can already have this reading on him and his life um but by giving us this character that has been basically kicked in the ass into something completely unknown to him uh, mm-hmm. i feel like they were able to kind of yeah i, I think they were able to make the sort of the sort of format of this game work in a way that say like final fantasy 13 was not because what they did with that game was they gave you an entire cast of characters who had lived in this world forever. They knew all of the, every, like all of the buzzwords and the lore that we were gonna get thrown at us. Whereas now yeah, they yeah. were making like a clear decision to give you a character who was like the fish out of water, who had to ask questions to understand what was going on, and who is intentionally kept in the dark for a large majority of this game in a way that oh God, yeah. allows like some of its most uh, meaningful emotional story beats to ring true because we are just as ignorant as this guy is. God, I mean, when we get to the bar where we talk about how long characters, like, keep some things about this world from Titus is a real thing to deal with, especially with the way they interact with Titus and some of the stuff, especially in the next section. Like, yeah, it's it's a lot to deal with. There's a lot going on here. Like, no, nobody's perfect in Spira, but man, everybody really kind of does Titus dirty a little bit. Yuna is perfect. (laughs) Um... But yeah, you're right. Yuna is perfect. Uh, but <laughs> um, we we wake up in some ruins uh, and and water and clouds and just absolute wreckage. And at first, I think there's a moment where you're kind of like, okay, this is the wreckage of the world, right? Mm-hmm. This is something's not right here. We can swim over to an area where we can find a little panel. Uh, that we can't make out the words that we can't make out Makalania, um, which is probably a good time to start to mention like Albed as the language mm. and the thing we will be picking primers up on throughout. Uh, I do try to make a point of getting all the Albed primers. Mm. I think there's only like two that are completely missable and they're both in home, I think. So we should be mostly good. I think most of the ones that even if you miss them in this opening area, or some of the other areas that later get cordoned off, they get like backups placed somewhere in the world mm. where you can't get them. But there are like two that I think are only achievable in there. But otherwise, like learning the Albed language becomes a thing, not just because of world building and lore and understanding language, but also because there's like some secrets and stuff hidden in them too. And right. it's, it, it's kind of neat. It's a little, little side game, a little side thing to chase if you want. Yeah. Um, we we swim and we swim and we get to some columns and some stairs and stuff and then the bridge goes out from under us and the battle theme kicks in and now we are completely by ourselves 
uh, and we've got to fight a bunch of monsters. And once once we kill two of them, uh, the last little mer guy gets swallowed up by a big old thing with mm. like a cage belly. And oh, it's <laughs> that thing is a whole fucking a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, even playing now. I remember when I was young, I was like, this is nasty. I don't like this. Mm. Uh, and even now, I'm like, oh, God, this is kind of horrifying. This is wild. Uh, Geos Gano, I think, is its name. Uh, and it's bad news. We'll we'll come back to deal with it eventually, or at least I will. I know. Have we talked to you, Ken? Are we going to be doing most of the side quests and stuff in this game? I figured we would figure it out as we go along. I I'm a person who I definitely I will probably seek to get all the summons and mm. I don't know if I'll get every uh ultimate weapon. I don't know if I'm ready to do maybe I'll stream myself trying to get the 100 lightning <laughs> toshes. <laughs> that would be that would be a very fun dumb stream, but uh yeah, it's I would like to see a lot of that summon stuff because I think especially the one that brings you back here later in the game uh is very worth seeing through like mm. storyline wise and stuff um some of the other ones like i think yo jimbo is just like a cool character and stuff mm. but the character that you get from this ruins area if i'm remembering correctly is pretty cool so um and that music ken oh that mm. music it's so good it's it. <laughs> um so we swim away through a, a tiny little hole that the Geos Gano cannot fit through and uh, the exit caves in behind us. And we find this kind of large, almost cathedral looking area uh, where there was clearly the remains of a campfire. And this is the part where the game taught me at a young age, what Flint and Tinder is, <laughs> <laughs> um, which actually took me a while because I spent forever looking for, an item called Flint and Tinder and not necessarily looking for the individual items, oh. Flint <laughs> and Tinder. And also like I was a kid, I didn't know what Flint or Tinder was. So that was interesting. So after I acquired a rock and a smartphone app that lets me date people, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, we, we run around a little bit and pick some stuff up and, uh, really see how just dilapidated and, and caving in all these ruins are just really driving home. Like everything has crumbled mm -hmm. to pieces and stuff. Uh, Titus manages to light a fire. Yeah. Good job, boy scout. And, uh, he, uh, starts to fall asleep next to the fire and we have a flashback where, uh, he, Oren is just, absolutely dumpstering titus about yep. <laughs> blitzball loss <laughs> i love it that the first line you get is orange is being like dude you suck <laughs> and titus being like did you come here to tell me that he's like nah i came here to tell you it was his birthday i thought you'd be crying <laughs> and i was like does orange just show up to like bully titus randomly kind of, kind of, is yeah. this the relationship that they have it actually even throughout most of the game is kind of so i mean there are a lot of people that bully each other in this game just wait till we get to lulu and waka but mm. um man orange just showing up out of the blue on a tuesday afternoon to just yep. end shit, titus on, shit on his whole life 
<laughs> yeah, he's like, I was in the neighborhood. Figure I'd come up and tell you how much you suck. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. And then the kid shows up again and, and says, you cried. And, and then bounces back. Um, yeah, the kid as a narrative device. I mean, we're going to keep talking about it throughout the entire game. But it's like, I think even from an early point, it starts to stick out very much as like a. It, it's weird, right? Because this is like a third person perspective story mm. and and we're kind of seeing i think by this point what we can clearly intuit as a ghost-like character that only titus is interacting right. with and seeing and so that feels that does feel kind of weird you know rpgs again like it's a role-playing game and so you're supposed to kind of be playing the role that is given to you and there are elements of this game where sometimes i feel like it veers into am i playing Titus or am I playing a character, you know, like, mm-hmm. like am I playing as whoever I want this character to be and making choices, which there are dialogue choices yeah. in this game, or am I playing a set role that is defined for me and I'm just enacting it out? Um, we had a lot of talk about this in the last of us. Yeah. I think it's interesting here too. The interesting thing that is different there is I, I feel like in, in everything that we've covered up in the show, like what was mass effect in the last of us, I feel like the divide that they were making felt very intentional in the way that they were doing it, where I feel like 10 is just kind of throwing something at a wall and just seeing what sticks. Cause like it, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really feel like any of the choices ever really make any meaningful like authorship of the game in any like really mm-hmm. substantial way. Um, and I think like they even by like 10 to, they kind of, you know, got away, got um, away from that. And yeah, so it is interesting to see, like, like, even, like this is a character that we name, too. So, like, there's, like, a weird, like, they want you to feel some ownership over this character, but, like, the ways in which they allow you to kind of enact upon that just never really actually go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this, this kid stuff throughout most of the series, I think. Because this is the one part of the game that is... It's one that I definitely still think about a lot in terms of like how impactful that this character ends up feeling and becoming and just in terms of like framing the story and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I am at the point where playing this game, I am like playing the story of Final Fantasy X. I'm playing Titus. I'm not playing like right. myself. I'm not playing yeah. like a Commander Shepard type. So yeah, for sure. And I think that's ultimately like what is rewarded is if you like don't look into like I kind of like read into the ways that they were trying to let you do things and say things and as if it had any sort of like meaningful impact on the world and I feel like it is one of the things like I said I think I feel like they were just trying something out yeah and I mean what what it does affect like effectively do is that it it establishes a lot of like there's something weird going on here outside of the you know, outside of the already weirdness of what's happening in the world, like there's something else happening mm. and there's clearly some level of like meta fictional stuff going on almost like this character is clearly aware of the information seems to almost be talking to you at times because I feel like every time we see this character, it's, it's looking at Titus, obviously mm. like the, the kid is looking at Titus, but they're also kind of looking at the camera too, in a mm. way that feels, you know, there's, so there are characters in like plays and stuff that kind of act as the narrator mm. and speak to the audience. I feel like the ghost kind of acts like that. The ghost kid kind of acts like, finally, mm. we have two games that we've covered that have ghost kids. And <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Mm. 
hey, there was a ghost kid in that game. Not that one, the the one in the forest. But um, you can't say that wasn't a ghost kid. Uh, or at least a, a dream kid. It was a dream. Kid. Dream kid, fine. Mm. Dream kid. Get on with the show. <laughs> um, and why would I when I'm having so much fun torturing you? Uh, so we wake up from that. Our fire's gone out. Tita's clearly not good at fire tending. Uh, you know, bad points. He's going to lose the merit badge for that. And then a monster shows up and we've got a fight. And so clearly we were just kind of trading blows back and forth. I've got to tell you, like when I was young, I used to use potions and stuff Mm. in this fight. Now I know that I can just trade hits the whole time and it doesn't matter. So yeah, uh, there, there are a lot of fights in this game where, I think I have just over the years become so good at beating them. Like not even so good. I just know the pattern so well that Mm. I will run characters down to like 20 health and be like, no, I know that the next hit's going to kill. So I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's also something that the final fantasy of the franchise leans into a lot is like fights. You don't necessarily have to win. Mm. Um, I think like to varying degrees, they do well enough at like, I don't know, like, letting you know that in some way or another, whereas I, I, dis- I distinctly remember Type 0 I was playing for review, actually, and I remember wasting a lot of my supplies just on a fight that I wasn't supposed to win. Like, the plot wouldn't, the plot demanded I did not win that fight. Mm-hmm. And they just, like, they, you know, it's frustrating when they don't telegraph it, but I think, like, like you said, like, you can just trade blows in this whole thing and, like, not necessarily even get close to just dying, but, like, yeah, because they, they, like obviously, like you can't die in, in the thing before something else happens, but um, at least like keeping it like paced as such that you did not fear losing by the time that it was going to make something happen. Um, right, right. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. That that is a balance to strike if you're ever going to try and like do that sort of thing, like that that sort of uh, that trick of like making someone seem like really invested in a fight until it gets to the point where like they clearly cannot win, and yeah, that is a balance. I feel like this is the fight that always reminds me how dynamic Final Fantasy X gets with its camera angles and stuff, Mm -hmm. too, because it, like, pans back and forth and rotates around. Like, there's a real feeling of this one and the Kamari fight in the next episode are both times where, like, they will do these cool pan shots from a distance and then, like, cut away to see a cool angle of them leaping in and back and stuff like that, that this game puts a little bit of extra cinematography on its mm-hmm. fights that I really dig yeah. uh, and I'm a fan of. Um, so after we've traded a few hits, uh, a whole armed crew busts down the door and in comes uh, a bunch of characters with guns and stuff. One of which is wearing a very strange mask and suit and stuff. I It took me forever when I was a kid to figure out what this suit was because I it, it it looks like Ivy from Soul Calibur from certain angles. <laughs> like, um, it was diving gear. Yeah. No, I think it was because the main color of the suit was like very tan. I was like, is this like an Ivy suit or something? Like, do mm-hmm. I need to hide this game from my parents or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's just the, the fabric is a weird color. Um, but yeah, so this character shows up question marks, the character, and she has an ability that, uh, she can, steal items and use them so here Mm. we've got a thief type character items that she uses uh she doesn't have a very good attack but the items that she can use to do a lot of damage are 
grenades, mm. <laughs> which also felt like very sudden to go from swords and slashing fantasy monsters to Riku's got a grenade. Yeah. <laughs> so not to spoil the name, but yeah, that I mean, was, it, that was why I tweeted that the other night. <laughs> I was like, where'd you get that grenade from Riku? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, I, I think like it, it was not even necessarily clear to us up to this point. There is like spirit is like, it's a hodgepodge of like a lot of different like aesthetics. And also what seems to be like, not time period isn't what I want to say, but like the way people the ways people fight in this game are varied in a lot of ways that yes. don't necessarily like not not all of them necessarily get uh, explained by the plot, but um, Riku coming in with like a distinctly different fighting style than and basically like all the other uh, all the other cast members um, is significant, and it also is like a actual like plot point of why like why people like her fight the way they do and what like what they have at their disposal that other characters might not um mm-hmm. so it's yeah like i it, think you got it, you got it. I, I was just saying like it's so like it it is significant that she comes in and like she is demonstrably different than anyone we've met so far it's something that i think final fantasy especially like coming off of final fantasy 7 remake i think this series does very well when it manages to strike that balance is like using fighting styles to inform who a character is, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, Oren fights like what Oren should fight. Like, you know, and, and Titus has that, like, you know, he's fast and he's swift and he's, he puts a little bit of style and flair into his attacks. But that also means that like, while he's really well suited for fighting, you know, speedster type enemies, he's not very good at fighting big tank, like characters or magic characters or stuff like that. You know, he needs Mm -hmm. some backup from, say Lulu who just kind of almost casually flicks her wrist and, and blows things way. up. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or Waka who is God, who's basically like, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo became a final fantasy character, <laughs> <laughs> like fights God with a soccer ball type mm. shit, which is really fun in a silly way. And I can't say I don't love, but, um, yeah, every character has a very distinct style in this mm. game. Like nobody fights like each other and they really lean on that once we get into to next week, especially like the way that this game kind of introduces different enemy types and encourages you to be swapping mm-hmm. party members in and out of battles in order to deal with different enemy types. Yeah. Um so once we win this fight and steal a whole bunch of grenades, if you're me. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, approximately four, which is how many I know I need for the fight that comes later. <laughs> um, she takes off her mask and we can clearly see that she is a girl and, and uh, you know, Titus being Titus is like, Oh, a girl. Yay. <laughs> and, um, she, she walks up and Titus kind of assumes like, Oh, just thank you and stuff. And then he gets put at gunpoint mm-hmm. and they start speaking to each other in a language we can't understand. Uh, and then the girl walks up and kind of leans into our in, into Titus's ear and says something and then gut punches him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just absolutely decks Titus and knocks him out cold, which, you know, this was the moment I knew I liked Riku, but, you know, mm-hmm. everyone their own. Uh, we wake up on a boat, which is basically kind of like it, it almost looks like an aircraft carrier the way it's built. It has like a really big wide deck mm-hmm. and all that. Um, and 
uh, we're getting kicked around by the by the armed dudes again, and then the the girl comes out, and they try to explain something to Titus, and they start pantomiming different things like <laughs> diving and swimming and stuff. <laughs> and so the girl kind of sneaks up behind Titus and whispers in his ear, like, "You can stay if you make yourselves useful. You know, you yeah. can you can stay if if you're useful." And so. Uh, we're like, cool, yeah, all right, we'll help out. Yeah, great. Uh, and then also Riku randomly teaches us how to use the sphere grid, which is not explained in lore or in game or anything. There's really no context for it. Right. She's like, oh, by the way, you should know this. And then it's like, here's the sphere grid, <laughs> which, sure. <laughs> um, we already talked a lot about the sphere grid, so yeah. I feel like we don't need to retread that here. Yeah. Um, suffice to say that music is also very good. Mm. Um, and then we dive down into the water towards some ruins where the big payday apparently awaits us. Um, so this is a scene that I think I would want to play the PS2 version again, because I feel like I remember the dive being a lot more ominous in the PS2 version, like it being more, like, like the water being darker and there being less like light and stuff. Whereas mm. here with, with the PS4 remaster on the PS5, I felt like I was just seeing too much in the water. I don't know. Yeah, does does I, that make I, and, sense? And that's something that like, we, I think we even talked about it with uh mass effects and just like general remasters, like a lot of, I mean, not necessarily like a lot of work to think of it's like actually making things look better, but a lot of the uh, sort of, work that gets done and making games look better, it gets often diluted to the fact that things are typically brighter, and then it's just, like, mm-hmm. the nature of a lot of these things. And I think that is just, like, they want people to see, like, the extra work they put into, like, updating things, and that's just, you know, how it goes. But it does mean, like, the tone of certain sections might not uh, ring the same way it did 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me a little bit of Mass Effect 1 yeah. in, in the Legendary Edition, where I was, like, especially in that opening of Mass Effect 1 with, like, how much more light there is in, in the ship and stuff like that, where I was like, oh, yeah, some of those shadows are not as, like, stark and, mm-hmm. and stuff as they were before. And, you know, they want to show off the cool facial tech they did and all that. I get that and all the cool lighting stuff they've got. But that also means, like, you know, the water was really scary <laughs> in mm-hmm. Final Fantasy X. I, Silent Hill 2 was the same way where... Like I think there was a remaster or something or or an up-res of Silent Hill 2 that made the fog less dense. Mm-hmm. And that, if you know anything about Silent Hill 2, like, suddenly makes the town a lot less just terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm always interested by those changes. So uh, we, we follow the basically the chain, the anchor down towards this building that has a bunch of red lights on. Uh, and we go into this building that kind of looks like a, like a mixture of like a, a deep sea lab and like a mining expedition or mm. something. I don't really know how to describe it. Uh, do they ever clarify? I can't remember later in the game what exactly this place I is, like what it's for. I don't think so. I don't distinctly remember it at least. Yeah. I mean, we do. There's, there's another thing here that we will see that will have a little bit more context later on, mm. but um yeah this initial place i think we're really just kind of turning the lights on so we can use the lights uh and this is also the moment where we realize that characters and at least some characters in this world can apparently just breathe underwater forever or hold their breath forever whichever one it is 
Um, you know, so just move with that. <laughs> and and we get a really good scene. So Ken, you mentioned here, when did Titus learn how to operate unknown machinery? <laughs> Every time I see this scene, it looks like Titus is just punching the monitor until it works. And honestly, that is my headcanon. If that's not the intended part of the scene, it's just him punching this like keyboard until the door opens. Which and... I mean, that's probable. Yeah, no, that's that's my personal head canon. If that's not actual canon, uh, good old Titus, uh, treasure hunter extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we we get the heart of this base going and and start to turn this operation back on, and doing so uh, riles some big old octopus thing that's been hanging out down here. Uh, starting what is our last boss fight of this section. Uh, it probably like, I think one of the more interesting ones, just in terms of this is kind of them introducing the fact that their bosses are all going to have very interesting and unique mechanics mm-hmm. because you attack him and, and after a while he will swim to the other side of the room and you kind of get told like, Hey, you just have to wait here until he comes back around. And then after waiting for a little bit, he does like this bull charge through your party. And so as Titus, and oh, Riku. if you fucked it up. Finally, yeah. finally it slipped out. As Titus and Rick, Rick almost said Titus and Riku. <laughs> Pickle Riku. No, don't put that evil on her. She doesn't deserve that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> As Titus and Riku <laughs> fight this character, uh, eventually, once it swims to the other side, um, and I, I hate to admit it, probably the first time I played this, it took me maybe a couple more times than this to figure out what I was actually supposed to do. Mm. But you can pincer attack this character, thus cutting off their avenue of respite and charge and, and turning it back into a normal fight again. It's just a little one-off thing. It's not really that like complex, right. but it was a, a cool little thing like, oh, hey, we altered the battlefield a little bit to yeah. take an advantage away from our enemy. Uh, that's yeah. neat. And I mean, and that's something they do throughout the game, which is something that like feels like recent Final Fantasies just don't do that. I miss like even 13, which is coming I mean, like a lot of the, uh, the battle systems that have come after this have been more like action oriented in various ways. So like, they don't like make this. Cause like there's an element of like, you have to strategize around these kind of things. And like, yes. Yeah. And, like, context of a fight matters more in 10 than it does in most games that have followed. I think is... 7 Remake, again, did some of this. Uh, like, there's the the fight with the big monster in the sewers where uh, it'll create, like, tidal waves down certain paths. And so you have to pay attention to where those are and, like, move and stuff like that. Um, I feel like that's similar to stuff that 10 does. But 10 feels like it really does it for a lot of different battles mm-hmm. and there are also like there are interactions in battles that are just special interactions that don't really are, are technically not even needed to happen like there's the talk command one of them mm-hmm. is one of the ones i remember and stuff yeah. like that where like there's just cool stuff they choose to do that make these battles feel very alive and happening mm-hmm. between real characters and it feels really rewarding as a player when you start to be in this one, like 
it's pretty much required to beat this character that you do the pincer attack. But right. there are other ones where you could totally miss some of the stuff. And yep. I think that's cool. I think mm-hmm. that's interesting. Um, so once we beat him and we swim out, we note that the, the, the big floodlights on this station or whatever have come on and are casting some light down deeper into the abyss onto what oddly looks like some sort of boat or ship or something. Wonder what that could be. Who knows? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, who knows? Who could say? Yeah, but uh, we we swim back up, and we we get kicked out of hanging out with the crew and getting some grub down below deck. So instead, we wait outside on the deck until Riku comes out and gives us some food and also tells us, "Hey, her name is Riku," um, and. We get a really long story scene here with Riku, uh, you know, revealing to Titus like, hey, you know, I, yes, I understand English or whatever, you know, they, do they have a, like, in-universe term for it? Like, I don't what? think so. No. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they call it English or anything. Yeah. That, that, that they speak the same language, but uh, the others, and, and Riku herself were speaking Albed, which is a different language and clearly a different um nationality uh they hail from a different part of whatever this world is that titus is from so titus starts to tell her all about what happened and and where he came from and all that and then riku's like oh you got near sin huh it must be sin's toxin you know you you, you'll you'll get your memory back in no time right because is like what what do you mean (laughs) get my memory why are you confused and she's like did you get hit in your head or something like Xanarkin's been destroyed for a thousand years? Mm. Boom, boom, boom. So I feel like the first time I played this game, I was kind of assuming that Titus was just in the wreckage of Xanarkin's mm-hmm. and we were getting rescued from it. Right. And this was going to start our big quest to deal with sin and all that. Um, I think that's, a, I think that's the intention of this scene is that you're supposed to think yes. that, like you must be in the wreckage of what used to be Xanarkin. But then, like, you, it is one of the things you start to think about it after she says that. And it's like, that was more than, like, recently destructed. That was rusted over. That was old. That was right. clearly not what we thought we were at. There are crews here salvaging, like, ancient ruins of what should have been here before. Right. And all that. Um, which is a really interesting reveal. And, like... You know, obviously this will continue to play out over the course of the game as now Titus has to reckon with, you know, was, could his previous life have been a dream? Like, could it have been a fantasy? Has he always lived in this world or did he go back in time or Mm. or forward in time or has he time traveled or is he in an alternate dimension? Like, there are just so many, like, question marks that start to pop up here. Mm. And amid all of it, he's learned that also nobody is going to believe him right. <laughs> about where he came from. Cause Riku has already kind of set herself out to be a very understanding and kind character mm. and is just immediately like, Oh yeah. Okay. You got sense toxin. That's, you know, sense toxin is why you're messed up. We'll get you fixed up. We'll get you to Luca. You'll find some blitz ball players in Luca. And that's like the one other, I think is a cool part of this game is that blitz ball is one of the things that persists across, right. you know, all of, a All thousand of the years. universe, let's say, yeah, um, and and becomes kind of one of Titus's like 
you know, guiding threads throughout mm-hmm. all of it. Um, but here, you know, we do have our character. We do have, you know, whatever you want to call our amnesiac hero or whatever. And we've been given very good story context for why they don't understand anything just like we do. But it also just raises some really interesting, like what I would call B plot, because very quickly, I feel like the plot of where is Titus and how does he get back gets sidelined very right. fast in terms of what I would consider is the main plot of Yuna's pilgrimage that we right. will get to next, next, uh, next episode. Yeah. But it, it still creates tension the whole time and keeps raising questions and, and lets these characters kind of stew on greater mysteries of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and, yeah. I mean, uh, well, what the initial plan here was that like Riku was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to take you to Luca. We're going to find some blitzball players that might know of you, at least if they don't know you specifically, if you are supposedly a, a star blitzball player somewhere, um, you're probably least notable for people to recognize you there. Or so you might know somebody there. Um, right. And so the, it, it, it almost tries to like establish that as the A plot, but something is about to happen that is going to make it once again, like the lesser priority of shit that's going on. Um, and even I think when we get to where we're going to end up in it, just like in the next episode, um, it very quickly has to kind of be like something we put in our back pocket for a little bit, just because Riku has, like she, she tells us straight up, don't tell anybody you're from Xanarkand because Yevon says that's a holy place, and we don't even know what Yevon is, but it's apparently a big deal here. So it almost like it becomes almost like a necessity for that to be kind of like something that we just have to keep with us in the midst of everything else that's happening around us, because we're about to get like wrapped up in what is basically like the single most important cultural thing that people do in this universe, um, and we're gonna have to just kind of like be content with our place in it for a little bit before we can figure out anything about ourselves. Right. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with up front and we don't really get much time to deal with it because right as we're starting to kind of cope with these greater questions that Titus has about the world, sin shows up again and blasts us off a ship again and sends us who knows where, who could could say? say, yeah. Uh, we'll find out on the next episode where we end up. Uh, but for the time being, you know, that wraps our, our Xanarkand episode, a very long episode as it turns out longer than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but also like just an intro to a game that mm. is something else. Like yeah. we've, we have effectively been now blasted out of home and safety multiple times <laughs> by sin. And the fucking whale motherfucker keeps coming up yeah. for us every time that we start to get a sense of normalcy. And, and we never like we have more questions than answers. And I think one of the big things I take away from final fantasy X's intro is there are a lot of games that either try to do the slow burn RPG start and just end up feeling very meandering and taking forever to get anywhere. Um, a lot of games I love have this problem mm. or they try to do the big bombastic you know which here's the start of the game sort of thing and it ends up like final fantasy 15 where i'm like okay even final fantasy 13 which i do think has has a good intro um but you just kind of end up feeling lost Mm -hmm. in the middle of it kind of trying to figure things out in in the middle of what something that you're supposed to be really 
developing an emotional stake in and you're too busy being like, wait, what, what, what do you mean? What's an LC and stuff right. like that? Um, yeah. So it, the way it manages to build the world, build the stakes, keep you involved, like have a lot of really witty little pieces of dialogue and just, you know, so much about this world, you know, enough about this world to know how little you understand about it by the yeah. end of this intro. And I think that's a really cool place to leave Titus as he heads off into his next island of adventure yeah i think think there's like a distinct difference between like something being confusing by not giving you information and something just being disorienting because it has taken the time to establish why something in this universe is off like off like off center like the things that you have already been led to uh or that you've already been able to understand because it's been told to you and that i think is something that like (sighs) I, I do feel like it's, it is somewhat fair to compare a lot of this game to Final Fantasy XIII, the original, because, like, they are structurally mm-hmm. very similar. And the ways in which they deviate from each other, I think it shows when... I feel like the series last had, like, a really strong handle on itself, and when it started to maybe get caught up in certain aspirations that I don't think have necessarily led it in the greatest, greatest direction, and I think has basically infected everything basically after it. Um... With the exception of Final Fantasy XIV, which is, like, this other thing that I think is... I have no experience in, like, talking about, but it, everyone tells me it's fucking stellar, so I'm gonna trust their word on that. But it is interesting. Like, like it, I think looking at those two games and their intros and how they... They disorient you in two very different ways, and one is effective and one is di- distinctly not. And um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of my appreciation for a lot of Final Fantasy X's intro is largely tied to the things that I know are coming, but I think it does leave itself on a strong enough note that I think anyone that didn't know would still, even 20 years from now, or just 20 years from when it came out, um, be, be still compelled to find out these mysteries, as opposed to annoyed that they have to look up a codex entry. Because I think just 10's opening and the ways that it is going to expand upon it feels very intentional in a way that I appreciate. Because um, mm. it, just, it just feels... It's weird to say ahead of its time in that way because I just feel like that is not necessarily the priority of a lot of RPGs these days. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think I think if I was to compare it to a modern RPG, I wouldn't even look towards the Final Fantasy series. I would start looking at stuff like Dragon Quest Eleven that has mm-hmm. kind of a similar, like, very driven front end of its story that immediately sets up a lot of stakes and twists on your expectations and stuff like that. Um, it's... It... it, it it just feels so distinct from a lot of other Final Fantasies. Like it really, it's it's weird to think how other Final Fantasies can feel like Final Fantasy, but Final Fantasy X ends up feeling like kind of its own very distinct flavor on the formula. Even its own sequel does not fully encompass like we talked about before. Um, and, and that's because X2 goes and does its own thing on top of that. Uh, that is, I think, distinct from everything else, including Final Fantasy X, but these games both together end up feeling like a piece of the final fantasy puzzle that is just a little bit separate, a little bit unique and definitely trying to strike out on its own in a way that I ended up liking a lot more than other final fantasies attempts to do so. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think final fantasy 13, I think my overall 
impression on that game is just that it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, I like that game fine enough. And I think 15, I weirdly liked it more when there was more nebulous stuff and the more mm. that they kind of gradually added onto it and tacked on and was like, but wait, here's mm. more story and wait, here's more backstory. And I was just like, yeah, now you're just, it's, it's a glut. It's too much. Um, whereas like 10 is just the right amount. And yeah. granted we will even get to a point where 10 over, over contentizes itself mm. <laughs> and, yep. and goes a little bit over uh, the deep end a little bit. But uh, right now we are just thriving being back in the world of Spira in the world of final fantasy 10. Like it's, I, I just can't, I cannot stress enough how much this game just gives me like a warm feeling when I play it. And I smile at such little things in this game, Mm -hmm. like the way certain characters read lines and the way certain animations play. And when certain musical tracks kick up, like I can literally just, I know by instinct when certain things start to play, I'm just, that's, it's a warm fuzzy feeling that not many other games can do. And even if I wouldn't call final fantasy 10, my favorite game of all time, it's definitely like a game that gives me that, like fuzzy nostalgic feeling that other games just cannot in the mm. same way. Yeah. That is our episode for this week. As always, we are Normandy FM, a retrospective podcast. We once covered <laughs> Bioware games and mass effect and stuff. I did want to shout out real quick. Uh, we did have some folks tweeting at us and, and messaging us about a recent report about a live action dragon age series. Uh, I think it was live action. Is, am I right about uh, that? Ken? Netflix. Or, I, I don't know. Netflix, there, and, like there were so few details. I don't think we knew whether it was to be animated or live action. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a, not even live action. It's just like a Netflix Dragon Age series. Um, it was a report. We, we've seen it. Um, I think Ken and I both looked at it individually and we're like, it's, it's interesting conceptually, but I've, I personally don't read this outlet that it came from and stuff. So I'm not super comfortable about doing like a bio bit about it or anything. Yeah. Uh, suffice to say, like I'm interested in what that might be, but uh, I don't have really more thoughts on mm. it beyond that. Or, I, or, and it doesn't even like officially exist at the moment. Yeah. So yeah. And if it, if it does end up being a thing, we will always make a show on it then. But Oh, absolutely. Until I mean, then. Shoot. If My it thoughts becomes are, a thing, it might be like one of our intermediate seasons here or mm, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And until then, yeah. I don't I don't care about Dragon Age at all anymore. So <laughs> well, you you weren't happy that we, we got no crumbs. Mm. <laughs> Zero crumbs. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, we're just gonna pivot to being a dead space podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Um <laughs> Oh man, you want to talk about wife guy the game? <laughs> um, <laughs> I love Dead Space. I say that lovingly. <laughs> um, anyways, yes. Yeah, so we are we are a retrospective podcast. Uh, we have covered Mass Effect. We have covered Dragon Age. We have covered Jade Empire, The Last of Us, and now we are on to Final Fantasy X. I'm, I'm repeating all this because every once in a while we have new listeners who jump on when we cover a new game, especially one that is outside of that Bioware wheelhouse that we established for ourselves at the front. So if you are a new listener, you like any of those games, the good news is there's entire seasons of content and spectacular guests and wonderful discussions. That's all waiting for you in our archives that you can find on whatever podcast services you use, you know, your, your apples, your Spotify's and such. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Normandy FM, where you can help support us. You can back us. You can 
keep the lights on and uh, pay for our Google Drive expenses. <laughs> this is becoming a thing uh, now that we have so many podcast episodes. <laughs> but uh, every every week, uh, y'all get special benefits. Anyone who backs gets access to the Discord. Those who back at the next highest level get these episodes as soon as Ken is done editing them. And at the highest tier, you get your name shouted out every week on the podcast or every episode i should say on the podcast because we are now bi-weekly once every two weeks uh and this week that list is kevin kulikowski chris johns alice hawk colin just colin just the wedge of destiny zach james and kevin hux thank you all so much for contributing thank you to that last name for giving me some recent advice on a trip i'm taking soon big <laughs> big uh shout outs to you uh as far as what we're doing, we are not confirming our guest list yet. Uh, we are still working on that. One of the benefits of having a little bit more time between episodes means that we get to kind of work with guests in terms of what episodes they want to cover and how they want to appear. We do have some people locked in already for the episodes that they'll be doing this season. Uh, but we might even have a guest next uh, episode that we do not know that we have <laughs> at this moment. So for now, I'll just say that our next episode is Besaid Island. Uh, and we'll see how many people appear on that podcast when that goes live. <laughs> but Ken, are, are you excited to, to delve into the depth of Final Fantasy X? Very much so. Very much so. Oh. I think I'm going to go play more after this. <laughs> so for Ken, for myself, thank you all. And we will see you next time on Normandy. After. <laughs>